When I was young and in, in high school, I attended a church that had a multi-purpose building. They had a youth room, there was a gymnasium, there were classrooms, a variety of other things available within that building. One year we had a youth event, they had a lock-in where we covered all the windows and made the entire building pitch black, including all the exit signs, which, I mean, who needs safety when you're in a lock-in, right? That's, we can throw caution to the wind. We played some game. I don't recall the particulars of what the game was exactly, but I know it involved chasing others through the building. There were some objectives that needed to be accomplished. There were the bad guys who were trying to stop the other people from accomplishing those objectives. There were several rooms that were literally pitch black. You could not see the hand in front of your face. And you had to enter and do whatever the objective was to accomplish in this scenario. Well, what began as a very fun and exciting evening, running all through the building, chasing each other, running around, it was just an exhilarating time. Well, what began as a lot of fun quickly turned sour. Not only was the building large and, quite frankly, creepy in the dark, uh, there were strange noises, and of course, you were running from someone else, so everything was a little bit terrifying. To make matters worse, of course, the nature of the game caused frenzied fright and and running away, flight from other individuals. Well, in the process, there were students who got hurt. One twisted their ankle as they were going downstairs, and another got hurt in a way that I don't fully recall all the details there. But what began as fun ended in misery. Eventually, we had to turn the lights back on. The game had to end prematurely before we finished all the objectives. And in the end, I'm happy to say that none of the injuries were severe, like nobody broke any bones, nobody had any, you know, concussions or uh, bleeding or anything of that nature. But the game did end and the fun was over for that time and we went on to something else. But I'd like us to just use our imaginations for a moment. What if in the midst of all that event, there was the, the injury had occurred, somebody fell down the stairs, they twisted their ankle, all that occurred... It's like, okay, we need to turn the lights on and see what's going on. But then when we turned to flip the lights on, discovered that nothing happened when we flipped the switch. Uh-oh, maybe we conclude there's a blackout. Oh, the power's out. Wouldn't you like, okay, so we have no lights. We have no PA system to announce to the building that, hey, guys, the game has ended. No big deal, right? We, we got flashlights, though. We opened up we got our flashlights. We turned them on only to discover that those don't work either. Well, we have flashlights on our phones these days, right? We just pull those out, turn them on. Oh, what? All of our phones are also dead. Well, what? Again, this is just an imaginary scenario, but all of a sudden, this just goes from a, a fun evening to this is kind of like a horror movie kind of scenario, right? This has is, this is gone from, hey, let's play a game, to this is downright terrifying. All hope of getting any lights on are all of a sudden dashed to the ground and we realize that we're in trouble because we're in the dark and people are hurt and there's no way to turn the lights on. Whether it is recognized as such or not, this is, in a way, the spiritual condition of the world apart from Jesus Christ. There is darkness in the world and Jesus Christ is the only one who can provide light. But so often there's a refusal to go to the light. Our text today seeks to show us the weight of this spiritual darkness and drive us even to the point of despair 
But then there's the ray of hope that shines from the light of the gospel that pierces the darkness like a spotlight at midnight. Turn to Isaiah chapter 8 this morning. As you're turning there, I'd just like to summarize a little bit of Isaiah's history, of how, or Israel's history rather, how we get to this point in Israel's history. We know, of course, that God promised to make a great nation out of Abraham, and that was fulfilled through his descendants that became known as the people of Israel. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and, and God brought them out of, the, out of the land of Egypt into the promised land. Before they got there, however, the Lord had given them the law, right? We have the law of Moses that was given on Mount Sinai, and it was through that law that God promised the people that if they obeyed the law and if they were faithful to their God, that God would bless them within the lands. However, on the flip side, if they rebelled against the Lord and if they went after false idols, that God would bring judgments against them. Earlier this year, we walked through the book of Judges and we saw the cycle of what happened. When the people would stray from their Lord, God would bring judgment against them. They would cry out to the Lord and God in His mercy would rescue them. And God was faithful to His covenant, faithful to the promises that He made. If you rebel against me, I will bring these judgments. If you repent, I will bring blessing. But that cycle went on and on and on as we saw through the book of Judges. And so they eventually sought out a king who would lead them. God gave them a series of kings. They established their monarchy. But most of the kings were wicked and idolatrous kings who forsook the God who had established them in their position. And so the Lord sent prophets to warn the people that if they did not turn back from their wicked ways, God would send them into exile. But the people did not listen. And in our text today, we find Isaiah bringing more specificity to the judgments that was to come to the lands. Isaiah chapter 8, and, and we're eventually going to be down in verse 19, but just in the beginning portions of this chapter, we see Isaiah making a promise that Assyria is going to come and take the people captive. That's the prophecy. That's what's coming and so the response to that prophecy is understandably one of, one of fear. The people are understandably afraid. Oh, Assyria is going to come and take us captive. That's a legitimately scary thing. But Isaiah is going to go on to say that though that is a frightful thing, that the people are afraid of the wrong thing. The people are afraid of Assyria. But Isaiah says, in Isaiah 8, verse 13, he says, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. He says, you fear the judgments, but you're not fearing the one who is sending it. And that's where the problem lies. As the text goes on, there's an interesting sequence. It's almost as if the people are responding. They're saying, okay, all right, there's... There's this judgment that's supposedly coming. This is what Isaiah says. Well, how do we know that's actually true? Maybe we should seek out some other voices, other information, other sources of truth that might speak and to give us more information. But where do they turn? Who do they look to? And that's where we're going to pick things up in verse 19, where we begin to see that forsaking God's Word brings 
darkness. Isaiah 8, verse 19. And this is Isaiah speaking. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? He asks these questions of the people. Rather than relying upon the Lord and what God has said, now these individuals, they're, they're going out and they're seeking mediums and necromancers. These are individuals that supposedly communicate with the dead and would ask them questions, and it was believed by the people then that because they are dead and they've already gone to the spirit realm, that they had more knowledge about things going on in the world than we do. So if we ask them questions, that they can give us answers and information. Alternate sources of truth. Isaiah asks the people, What are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why are you inquiring of the dead on behalf of the living? That doesn't make any sense. And we sit here today, and perhaps we feel some of that same incredulity that uh, that Isaiah was experiencing, right? Like, silly Israelites, what are they doing? Of course you shouldn't go talking to the necromancers and the mediums, and we we would rightly associate that with demonic activity, right? We would say, that's, that's foolish. Why would you do such a thing? That doesn't make any sense. Why are you doing that? And yet, here in the year 2022, we can do some of the same things, can't we? Tarot cards, palm readers, different astrologies, all claiming to be sources of truth, sources of information. But these things do not have the blessings of God. In fact, we have a specific word against these sorts of activities. Our culture can forsake the word of the Lord in favor of horoscopes, astrology signs. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, why would you do that? But lest we be tempted to think that it's just those people that are buying into astrology out there that are doing this sort of thing, and it's just them. And of course, we're, we're, not, we're not seeking tarot cards or we're not engaged in any of that. I don't mess with that stuff. But isn't there a sense in which we can do the same thing too? Right, it's not superstition or witchcraft or divination or those sorts of things, but, but we can still seek out alternate sources of truth and information from sources that don't know the Lord. Consulting the spiritually dead on behalf of the living. This could take place in a variety of ways. Or we can elevate political leaders in our minds to, to places where they ought not to be. Or we can think about different individuals as if they have the answers to what solves our land. And we've seen this through a variety of, of political cycles as it's gone on. I believe we saw this with President Trump. Many viewed him as the savior of America who who knew exactly what needed to be fixed in the land. Before that, people treated President Obama in the exact same way on the other side of the aisle. Whatever it is that we think of our political leaders, they are not all-knowing saviors. Then there are other things. Things like the Enneagram 
which is steeped in paganism and purports to reveal information about yourself that's available nowhere else. And I need you to know, I'm not inherently against like personality profiles and things of that nature, but the Enneagram claims to be more than just a personality test. The Enneagram claims to reveal information about you, and it is born and is steeped fully and thoroughly in pagan ideas. Other sources of truth. I remember reading the, uh, the Dear Abby columns back in the newspaper, back when newspapers were a thing. People would write in and they would ask questions, asking for advice, and Abby would answer, right? But even as a young man who is relatively new in my faith, as I'm reading this, I'm, I'm reading the answers that Abby's providing, and that is not biblical counsel. It is not according to what God's Word would have to say. We have to ask ourselves, are we really going to give ourselves to the counsel of individuals who are actively hostile to the things of the Lord? These days, it is uh, it's common to, to hear this concept of, of deconstruction that goes on. We were talking about this before the service about how these individuals that are deconstructing their faith and, and they're, they're questioning all the things that they used to believe. And there's nothing wrong with examining your beliefs and, and seeking to understand, is this really what the Bible teaches? I encourage that. That's, that's what we ought to be doing, examining the Scriptures. Is this what the Bible really teaches? But so often what happens in these deconstruction movement that we see going on today is people are examining everything, but they're not examining it according to the Word of God. They're examining it according to what culture says is right, what the culture says is true, and they're bringing in cultural ideas and trying to mesh them with some vaguer ideas of what God is or does or what He is like or what He has commanded seeking out information from the spiritually dead on behalf of the living. And so it goes. And of course, there are more ways that this can play out, but the bottom line is this. When you rely upon those who are themselves in darkness, you will only get what the darkness can give. And that darkness can only give more darkness. And thus we have the words of Isaiah in the next verse, Isaiah 8.20. To the testimony, to, or sorry, to the teaching and to the testimony. This is what we should be pursuing. We should be pursuing the word of the Lord. But then he goes on to say, if they will not speak according to this word, if they are not speaking according to the word of God, he says, it is because they have no dawn. If the people that you are seeking for truth do not speak according to the word of the Lord, it is because they have no dawn. There's no light coming. They exist in perpetual darkness. A word for dawn speaks exactly what it sounds like it is. It's a dawn. It's the sun rising and coming up. You know, every night we know that though it is dark, we go to bed at night, it is dark. When we get up in the morning, we know that the sun is going to come up. It, 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 it came up again this morning, just like it did the day before or the day before that. We're going to go to bed tonight when it's dark. It's going to come up again the next day. But Isaiah says that such is not the case for those who do not have the word of the Lord. And of course, he's speaking in a spiritual sense. For them, they have no dawn. There is no light and none is coming. 
He describes their end in verses 21 and 22. He says that they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth and behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. It says they are distressed and hungry, and yet they blame God for their condition. Turning their faces upward speaks of, of looking up in anger and rage, almost like shaking your fist at the sky, shaking your fist at God, blaming Him for the condition. Never mind the fact that God has spoken, that God has revealed Himself, God has given us His Word. Never mind the fact that they have willfully chosen to reject the Word of the Lord in favor of the counsel of the world. Yet they have this hatred for God. And so then they look down to the earth, only to find more of what the earth has to offer. One commentator put it this way, he says, those who depend upon the earth's solutions to the earth's problem only compound their darkness. Those who depend upon the earth for earth's solution, those who depend upon the earth for solutions to the earth's problems only compound their darkness. This is the condition of Israel in the time of Isaiah. They have utterly forsaken the word of the Lord, have sought out alternate sources of truth in favor of anything other than the word of the Lord. Anything but God's truth. They shake their fist at Him then for their darkness and the pain that they have only brought upon themselves. And in many ways, this is the natural state of humanity outside of Christ. There's rebellion, there's hostility to the Lord. And we see the effects of this, right? We see this, our, our society is the fruit of this today. And it's not just in society, we see this even within our own homes. When we reject what God says is true, it only brings pain and difficulty into our lives. There's other texts that speak about this reality. Psalm 32, verse 10, it says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked. When the wicked go about their wickedness, when they choose to live in rebellion against God, it brings sorrow into their life. It brings hardship. And so we see, likewise, in Proverbs 13, 15, Good understanding produces favor, but the way of the treacherous is hard. God has designed us to live in a particular way, and when we ignore that, it only brings hardship upon us. And this is not just some arbitrary command because, well, because I just, I said so. This goes back to our very nature, the very design, and and we have a loving God who's giving us instructions based on that nature and that design. And when we forsake that, we run contrary to what the design is was intended to bring about. When we walk in the darkness, we're going to stub our toes, right? It's just the fundamental reality of what happens. And if left to our own devices, this is where we would remain. For us, there is no dawn. There is no light coming. There's only gloom and darkness and anguish. 
This is a great Christmas sermon, isn't it? <laughs> so uplifting, giving us all the warm fuzzies today. The nostalgia, hope is just flowing as we think about these realities. Not so much. We do need to just marinate in this for a moment, though, and just reflect upon what this means. Right? This is the state of the world. This is, Scripture often speaks and uses uh, the, the terminology of light and darkness to speak of truth and lies or forsaking the truth. And so to, to, to neglect God's Word is to choose spiritual darkness. John writes in John chapter 1 that the men that love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. This is what we naturally prefer because of our sin nature. But praise be to God who does not leave us in the dark. Praise God that Isaiah, he does not stop at Isaiah chapter 8. But he goes on to chapter 9. And praise God that we can celebrate Christmas because in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God gave us light. So let's continue on and turn the page and see more of what Isaiah says here. Forsaking God's word brings darkness, but in mercy, God promises light. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Rejecting God's word brings darkness, and darkness brings trouble. But God in His mercy is not willing to leave the whole world in darkness. He gives Israel the light of revelation within the Old Testament. There's, there's Moses, and there's the prophets, there's the Psalms, there's the wisdom literature, etc. But that light is rejected by most of Israel, is rejected by most of those, and embraced only by a small minority of individuals. But in that light that he gives, he promises to send more. He promises to send an unmistakable light. In the past, God has revealed himself through the prophets. Where there would be a day coming when God would reveal himself by sending Jesus Christ into the world. God the Son taking on human flesh. All the fullness of deity dwelling bodily in the man Christ Jesus. The light of the world. And this is to be a great light, right? It's not, just a, it's not just a small twinkle in the midst of the darkness. It's not just a small little keychain flashlight that barely gives light for small tasks. Not just a small candle on a stormy night. No, this is a spotlight that pierces and drowns out the darkness. This is like those bright LED headlights that we hate so much when we're driving on the road when the high beams come on. It's like, dude, turn off your high beams, right? It, it just blinds us. This is a brighter light shining like the sun at noonday when there's a fresh blanket of snow on the ground reflecting everywhere. Just absolute light everywhere. The light has shone. And Israel is overjoyed. But look carefully at the text here. 
It says that he has made the way glorious, the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. He has promised this light for Israel, but the light isn't just for Israel. Galilee of the nations. There's a hint there that that the Messiah was not just for the Jews. Yes, He is the Jews' Messiah, but He is more than that. The light just doesn't exist within a bubble that is only going to be over the land of Israel, but it is for the nations. The light penetrates out into the world, and it brings great joy. Look at what He says in verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. We don't live in an agricultural community, so some of that analogy gets lost in us a little bit. We don't live in a military community either, so the spoils of war concept. But, But if we, I'm going to use a different analogy, and this is a very poor analogy in comparison. But even think about you know, sports teams, like teams that try to get to the Super Bowl. And they're out there and they've spent their whole lives, their whole career trying to get to that moment. And they're, they've given it all that whole season long and their, their bodies are beaten up all through the course of the season. They finally get to that moment and they win and the time expires and they have the lead. And there's all this excitement, right? There's this jubilation, all the confetti flies in the air. And there's a celebration that lasts for weeks, There's a parade that goes through the city, the home city of the team that won, celebrating the accomplishments. Joy at what has been accomplished. Well, there's significantly more joy than than a mere Super Bowl victory. I said it's a weak illustration. It really is. It's a joy of the lights, of the coming of the Messiah. Why? Why? Why is there joy? He's going to give us four reasons why. We did see that there is a a new joy that comes through this light, but there are four reasons in this text for why there is joy. First, there's a new freedom that flows from this light. Verse 4, the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulders, the rod of his oppressors, you have broken as on the day of Midian. No more oppression, he says. No more bonds. No more slavery. No more socioeconomic struggles. All that is a thing of the past. No more racial tensions. It's all done in Christ. There's a new freedom for all who come to the lights. There's a new freedom. There's a new peace that comes. Verse 5. It says, for every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Your armor, your equipment, you're not going to need it anymore. We can throw it in the fire. You don't need your Kevlar. You don't need your body armor. You don't need your helmets, your army boots. It's done. All that is just going to be pawned off, sold, burned in the fire. There will be peace and no more war. And this is because when the light comes, all of that, all the war will be done. And it's because the light isn't just an idea. It's not just some, some utopian idea of, okay, if we just get the right ideas in place, we can solve all of this. No, the light isn't just an idea, but it's a person. 
The light is a person that comes. We see a new peace is established through the rule of a new king. Verse 6, for unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. A child, a son, a human being is going to come into the world and he shall be a ruler. The government will be upon his shoulders. He is a new king. And this king rules in perfect wisdom. He is the wonderful counselor. In his counsel are wonders. His wisdom is vast. He rules with perfect insights. He is the mighty God. The son that would be born, he's not just a mere human like any other mere son that was born. No, this is a divine ruler. Here we have the mystery of the incarnation revealed. Emmanuel, God with us, God in human flesh. How does that work? Here it is revealed for us. (coughs) He is the everlasting father. Now this phrase has confused some. When we think of the Trinity and the concepts there, we think of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, yet three persons, and we we think about that. And we believe that Jesus Christ is that that second person, that God the Son. He's not God the Father, but God the Son. And if that's who's being spoken of here, well, why is he called the everlasting Father? How are we to think about that? Well, it's common to speak of initial rulers of a nation that they are called fathers of that nation, right? We use this phrase when we speak about our own founding fathers. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, Alexander Hamilton. Founding fathers, right? They were some of the first rulers, the first crafters of the documents that govern our land. Well, we have a new king who is establishing a new kingdom. And as such, as he is establishing his rule, he is thus the father of, of this new kingdom. But unlike Washington or Jefferson or Franklin or anybody else, this king isn't going anywhere. He's an everlasting king. His rule and reign shall never have an end, and his reign brings about that peace, that joy, that freedom that we are speaking of. His reign brings that, and we see that he is the prince of peace. No more war, no more strife. Only peace. And as that new king, as we've alluded to already, he establishes the new kingdom. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There's a new kingdom that is established. We live in a world right now that is full of injustice. It's everywhere. It's in our justice system. We, we see it within our courts. We see it within our government. We see it within our schools and our workplaces and even within our own homes. Well, there's a new king coming that's going to establish a new kingdom where all that injustice is done away with. All unrighteousness is gone, and only righteousness remains. What a glorious sight that that will be.
Now, we believe that Jesus Christ is the one who is prophesied here, that this, he is the coming king, that he is the one to fulfill these things. That may lead us to ask the question, okay, if Jesus is the Messiah, if he's the new king, and this is what he's supposed to establish, then why do we still see this injustice? Why do we still see the trouble that we see in the world? Why do we still see darkness in the lands? To help us understand this, I just have an illustration for us. There are many prophecies in Scripture that are often referred to as mountaintop prophecies, that from, from the perspective of an individual looking at a mountain range, we see the different peaks, but we see them and it looks like from afar that they're right on top of one another, that they're, that they're right next to each other. And so we can illustrate this with, a, with an image. <clears throat> we see a mountain range and we see the peaks and it looks like they're right on top of one another. But when we change our perspective or when we just get closer, we begin to realize that those peaks aren't actually right on top of each other, but there's a gap in between them. And so you may notice the compass is going to rotate as we see from a different perspective. The two peaks that looked like they were side by side, we actually see that there's a gap in between them. Given that often the uh, Old Testament prophets... They were given information about things that were to come. But God often didn't reveal everything about the particulars of the timing of all of the events. So, for example, we have the existence of the church age. We don't find that prophesied within the Old Testament. That was a mystery that was revealed within the New Testaments. As we get closer to things, as we get closer to the fulfillment of prophecy, we see that there is often this kind of thing going on. And so from Isaiah's perspective, he sees that mountain range, and it looks like the coming of the light of the Messiah would also bring the kingdom at the same time. However, later in the same book of Isaiah, he also prophesies about the suffering of the Messiah and his death. And, and it's, it's plausible that Isaiah perhaps would not have understood how all of those things would have fit together. But as we move forward in time, we see things that were not fully revealed and fully clear to Isaiah. What was not clear to him is now clear to us that, that, the gap, that there was that gap between the coming of the Messiah to redeem and the coming of the Messiah to reign. And we see the church age fits within that gap of time. And so Isaiah is going to go on. He's going to quote this very passage The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. He's going to quote this passage when he speaks about the Messiah's earthly ministry upon the earth. He did come to bring joy. He did come to bring peace. And yet we see that the fulfillment of of everything that is spoken of in a full way, that that awaits a future fulfillment that is yet to come. There is a reality that in His first coming, when when He did come to redeem, that there is joy and that there is peace that is first experienced by those who place their trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. So Jesus Christ is the light of the world, and He shines into the darkness. And it is only through faith in Him and His finished work on the cross that any of us can walk in the lights. 
And so there is, in a sense, in which we already have some of the spiritual blessings of the Messiah that He was promised to bring. But what about the rest? What about the rest? The things that are promised here in the book of Isaiah, they are still coming. We make no mistake about that. That second mountaintop is not so far away. That kingdom will be established. The way was paved for its establishment with the first coming of Christ, and it will be fulfilled in His second coming. The question for us is, do you want in? Do you want to be a part of that kingdom? I think of passages we have like in the book of Colossians chapter 1 where it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Do you want in to be a part of that? The people who have walked in darkness, have seen a great light. Liz, if you want to go to that last slide, it's not working for me here. It's clear what remains for those in darkness, but for those who have trusted in Christ, we are entering into that kingdom. And there is joy and peace and freedom forevermore for those in Christ. This is part of what Christmas is all about. All this stuff we talk about, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That kingdom is provided for in His first coming, in His life, and in His death, and it is that kingdom that will be established in His second coming. And the way to enter that kingdom is clear. You can choose to walk in the darkness. You can choose to reject the lights. But you will only ever get more darkness. Or you can come to the light. You can come to the King of Kings. You can come to the Prince of Peace. You can come to the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Jesus Christ, who lived that perfect life so that He could be that perfect substitute and die on the cross for our sins. And He welcomes anyone who would come to the light. Turn away from the darkness and place your full trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for your salvation. There is no other way. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, I, we must not escape the reality that there's, this text is not without challenge for us as well. You've trusted Christ, you've come to the light, okay, well let us walk in the light as He is in the light. So often we choose to listen to those who are in the darkness rather than to seek God's word for counsel. Let us not consult the dead on behalf of the living. Let us not seek the world's solutions to the world's problems, but rather let us look to the light of His Word. Let us look to Jesus Christ and find all of our hope in Him. Let us look forward with great joy to the, great, the, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, when He shall come again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ and what he accomplished in his first coming. We thank you for this prophecy from the prophet Isaiah as he foretold 
what was to come through Jesus Christ and what is surely coming when He establishes His kingdom on this earth to rule and reign in truth, righteousness, and justice. And when the thousand years are ended and, and the one final battle is complete and we enter into the eternal states, that kingdom will know no end in the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Lord, I pray that we can walk as sons and daughters of the light, that we would forsake the counsel of those who are in darkness and live in accordance with what your word says. Lord, even as we close with the words of the song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, as it, in, it speaks even from Israel's perspective, looking forward to the coming of the, of the Messiah, even so we stand here today looking forward to your second coming in the return of Jesus Christ. And we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In the meantime, may we walk with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.